Well, it's good to see everyone. Yes, good to see me. You didn't expect it, did you? <laughs> I know you didn't expect it. Tim said, uh, well, he said, well, you know, you may go, you may not. It's okay. I said, well, I'd hate for us all to have to experience this, uh, this difficulty by ourselves, you know? So I thought we would experience it together. That seems like that's the best way to do it. So let me see here. How do I put this on gallery? Is that it? There it is. I got it. Good. So I thought we'd experience all of this. Uh, some of you know that my son died. Some of you don't. And so I thought we'd all experience it together. And we're talking about impermanence. So this is probably the best time to talk about it. I intended to listen to Tim's talk and then do the um, discussion night is what it's supposed to be. But I did it. So, (laughs) oh, well, no discussion night. Too bad. (laughs) So. Uh, I guess I should check to see if um, anyone is here for the first time. So you could kind of say, what is going on? <laughs> there you go. And you're probably thinking, what is going on? Who else is here? Right back there. Yeah. You guys. Uh, yeah. So you're thinking, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. So we'll talk a little bit more about it after the meditation. But I'm glad you're here at Seattle Insight. I am Tuere Salab, one of the guiding teachers. And um, many of the people in the Sangha knew that my son was very sick. And so this is just, uh, he died a couple of weeks ago, or maybe about a week and a half ago. So uh, there was this expectation that I wouldn't be here. But it's good to see that you appreciate that I am here, though. <laughs> so... We're going to have a sit for about 40 minutes, and then um, uh, I'll talk a little bit about Dhamma, and then we'll just uh, open it up for some questions and some comments and response and whatever. I figure we should share this together, so whatever really that you want to talk about or uh, open up for that, okay? So I have a reflection I think is beautiful It's my book that I've been using uh, from uh, Ian McCrory, his uh, Dhamma Reflections. And this is one of his reflections. The Buddha has not gone anywhere. We'll see him every day. In every gift you give, in every lonely person you befriend, in every homeless person you shelter, In every naked child you clothe, he is there whenever you experience anatta, selflessness. You will see him every day in the tears of a child parting from his mother, in the swollen belly of the refugee, in the anguish of those trapped in prison, in the death of a loved one. He is there also. Whenever you experience dukkha or suffering, you will see him every day in the building, in the budding of a tree, 
in the return of the waterfowl, in the icing, icing of the pond, in the melting of the snow. He is there whenever you see anatta impermanence. So, um, I'm not really quite sure what I'm going to say, so we'll just see what comes up. (laughs) But I know what I want to start with. Um, This uh, teacher, she's like a, a, I guess, a colleague. We all went through the community Dharma leader program number four together back in 2010. And she called me up after she heard about Thaddeus dying. And she goes, um, I didn't know my child was sick. And at first I didn't quite understand what she meant, that she didn't know her child was sick. And she said that, you know, for two years in the community Dharma leader program, every retreat, I would tell some story about Thaddeus and Raymond. And I told them the story uh, for some kind of Dharma teaching. But she said that over the years of us being together, she kind of took him on as her child. And she thought I should have told him told her that he was sick in the first place. She didn't appreciate finding out that he had not only been sick for a long time, but that he had died. And I don't think I, it's quite strange when you're a teacher and you share stories with people, but there is a kind of a felt sense that all these people know Thaddeus as if he was their child. There's a, the whole GoFundMe thing that we put together so that Thaddeus could get married and move out created this whole network of people that are bonded to him. And Eugene Cash, somebody told me that Eugene Cash gave a Dhamma talk to his Sangha one time about Thaddeus and what had happened with this GoFundMe. And it's just like this huge network of people that know him. More than, I mean, people who have never even seen him, but they know him. There's a felt sense of connection. And I think that felt sense of connection is what is important about impermanence. Because in a, in a, in a, in a way, we look at our lives in an ordinary sense. And it's that ordinary mind state that really is causing us the bulk of our suffering. It's not the life that we live. It's the ordinary way in which we see it. We don't see the extraordinary or what the Buddha would refer to as super mundane capacity of our human existence. So in an ordinary sense, he's my kid and he's gone. But many of you in this room don't even know. So why would I be here sitting here talking 
And it doesn't sound like I've lost my child or not. So it's like, what is that? And it's because there is an, an extraordinary thing that happens in our human understanding if you can begin to see the liberative quality of impermanence. Impermanence is not this kind of, um, I have to put up with something. It's more of a understanding that there is, that there is something that is connected to Thaddeus that has nothing to do with his body. It has nothing to do with the physical form. That people know him and connect to him. He was clearly a bodhisattva, if anybody had ever known him. And part of the reason why I can be so peaceful is not because my practice is so strong and extraordinary. It's because he was so easy with the, the reality of having cancer and knowing it was terminal. And his capacity to accept the inevitable that was happening in his life made it easy for everybody else to accept it. He could have been frantic and angry and mad and fighting the whole thing. And I would have been like any other mama. I would have been stressed out and angry and mad and fighting with him, trying to make it better, trying to fix it so that he wasn't sad. But he was easy with it. And in that easiness with it, he made it easy for everyone else. I think this is what the Buddha is pointing to with Dhamma. There is a way that we are stuck in these human bodies. There's nothing to be done about it. And in that, it means we are going to feel pain. These bodies are all, every single one of us are going to have some degree of health challenge or some degree of difficulty that's going to come along and take us out. It's just the inevitability of it. So if we spend the good portion of our lives trying to avoid that or somehow believe that we can avoid that, then we are going to suffer. Because inevitably, we are going to have to come face to face with our own death. And that idea of what I learned from, I guess, Thaddeus is the best way I can explain it, is uh, I, think, I think that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about Thaddeus's Dhamma talks he used to give me all the time during the time he was living with cancer. That it just it just hit me that I could try to explain this to you from my own perspective, but I'm not living facing death. That's the truth of it. So I don't I don't think I'm going to die tomorrow. But when Thaddeus and I, you know, yeah, I'll just tell you, he had a stomach ache, and he just kept having this stomach ache, and this was before the pandemic, and I say Thaddeus what's wrong with your stomach? And he'd say, nothing. I just haven't eaten. I just I have hunger pains. That's what he called them was hunger pains. You know, but 
after he had hunger pains for like six months, damn near a year, I'm like, Thaddeus, you're not like starving. Just because you didn't eat yesterday doesn't mean you have a hunger pains today. So I made him go to the doctor and I had to threaten him with no more money. I wasn't going to help him with nothing else. That was the only way I could get him into the hospital. So he went. And that's when we found out that he had this terminal illness. And on some level, at that time, when Thaddeus first found out that he had uh, stage four cancer, it was in uh, March or April of 2020. So right when the pandemic started, he found out that he had this terminal illness. And they, at that time, thought that he would only live for a few months. And they, you know, it was kind of this pitiful way that they talked to us and looked at us almost like poor you and didn't quite know how to it's probably because I don't know how many black parent patients this woman had had but she looked pretty much scared to be in Thaddeus to have to tell me and Thaddeus that the boy's gonna die soon and so she looked nervous and didn't quite know how to share it and he and I just kind of drove home looking at each other like, what, what does this mean? And I think there was a window of time. And this is what I think the Buddha was pointing to. There's a window of time when some difficulty comes to us that everything in us pushes against that difficulty. I don't like this. I don't want this. Whatever it is. It could be when you're sitting in your meditation and some, you know, story comes up in the mind or some discomfort, some restlessness shows up. There's this initial, I don't want it. And that push against it is a very much a human kind of state that we're always, that first impulse is to push away something that's unpleasant. And that's, I think, what Thaddeus did also. I think he had this push against it, like he didn't like it. But he had some conversation with God, some reconciliation he made with God. And after about a couple of weeks, he turned this really difficult corner and he looked at it as this... um kind of what he called perspective. He said it put perspective in his life. That's the way he would say. If people would say, oh my God, Thaddeus, what are you going to do? You know, or if they're complaining about something or grumbling about something, he would say, oh, I see what's wrong with you. You don't have perspective. And I would ask him, what do you mean by perspective? And he says, well, when you're going to die, it puts the whole world in perspective. Because nothing is really quite that big of a deal when you compare it to about to die. And so his whole temperament began to change. This is what I think the Buddha was pointing to. If you put the reality of impermanence in perspective, then it doesn't really matter what you expect out of life, there is going to be an end to everything. 
So everything that starts is going to at some point end, whether it is a pleasant feeling or it is a great job. That great job is going to at some point end. That pleasant feeling is going to at some point end. And when you begin to grasp the reality of that, then the the flow of impermanence can become quite freeing because you're you are less tied to have to keeping everything good set up and straight and lined up and everything is right. And you are more tied to just living with whatever has come your way. And then there was this other uh, kind of wisdom besides the perspective that Thaddeus would would carry, he would say, inevitably, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. Best thing that ever happened to me. And I would say, how can getting cancer be the best thing that ever happened to you? He said, think about it. I'm 34-year-old black man living in my mama's house, laying up, playing video games, hanging out with my daughter. And nobody comes in and says, you need to get a job. (laughs) Instead, everybody would come in and say, is there anything you need? Can I take care of you? What can I get you? (laughs) So he had this sense that once he got to the place where he could accept that, yes, he was going to die at some point. He didn't know when, but he knew he was going to die at some point. And you... You, you come to accept the truth of impermanence and then you get perspective of the reality of it. And then this sense of embracing it as it is that you can find, it's not the silver lining, like uh, you got to accept this, but he found his joy and mudita within it. And so he, he, um, it's like he found where the humor was within something that was quite difficult. And so Thaddeus was always pretty much a playful kid anyway. So he was extra playful around being sick. And in that, instead of him living only a few months, he actually lived for three years. But then there's one other thing that I want to kind of point out is because by the time Thaddeus died, the body he was living in was horrific. He was about this big around. I mean, he was pretty small when he was pretty thin when he was a grown man, but he was about this big. He was six, five, and I could pick him up with no problem. That's how thin he was. And he, he didn't, he, he lived in a little ball because his stomach was always hurting. And so he was always kind of curled up in a ball or he was, you know, um, half sleep from the serious meds that he had to take to deal with all that pain. So on one, when he finally died, what the best 
or the most realistic emotion I had was relief. Like, okay. Because you know that 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 is, that guy is not in the shell that he was trapped in. You can really see it. If you've never seen, if someone dies, like my mother, my sister, and my brother died like a heart attack, just right thin. And we didn't get to talk to him or say goodbye or anything. But when someone dies and it's a kind of a long kind of descent into death from the illness, that is a completely different understanding on death. When someone dies unexpectedly, it can be a shock to the system and it takes a while to grapple with it. But when someone dies like Thaddeus did, there is this recognition that they are not, they are almost trapped in this human form. It is not a, you know, his, he still was joking and playing. We, um, <laughs> we decided probably about the beginning of December. I think it was probably around the beginning of December or maybe it was around Thanksgiving. We decided to watch all the Marvel uh, superhero movies in timeline order. And there is a boatload of them, something like 25. So Thaddeus would always say, Mama, you got to get back from your retreat, man. I don't know how much longer I can hang out with all these boobies. Because the deal was he couldn't sneak and watch any until I was there. We had to all watch together. And so his daughter and uh, my daughter-in-law's kids, we would all pile on the bed and eat dinner in this room with him and watch these uh, Marvel Marvel movies and we could only watch one a night because that was about all he could take but over the course of that time he would laugh and we had we played I mean it was just uh even though he was in this body that was decaying and disintegrating the Thaddeus part of him was very much uh alive and open, big, fine. So you can't help but get a true sense that we are actually trapped in this human body. That we are not, as long as the human body is good, we're good. Everything's happy. Everything's smooth. Everything's clicking. But once this body begins to have some difficulty or some struggle or some disjoint, then this thing begins to happen that I noticed with him. There was this, it's almost like a dance between sometimes his spirit would be ready to die, but the body would not go. Or sometimes the body would be like, I can't take it anymore. And he'd have this strong-willed spirit. And there is kind of a weird back and forth that people go through trying to decipher how do you line up the bodies ready to go and the spirits ready to go together at the same time. It's a process that only people who are dying 
can really understand that and relate to that. So in some respects, watching Thaddeus go through this process with the temperament that he had, this kind of, um, he just was such a bodhisattva. And, and I, I want you to know one more piece that he did as a, as a practitioner, but the way he, watching him die and go through this process was such a gift to me because I remember Joseph Goldstein one time we, we were at the teacher training and we were all, he asked us about if somebody came to you and said that they're a student came to you and said, you know, a loved one had died. What do you, what, what do you say to them? What do you do? And we were talking about how to be compassionate and caring and self care. And we were talking all about this and Joseph said, that may all be fine, but you are a Buddhist teacher and your responsibility is to teach liberation. And that means that when your student comes to you, you have to point them towards what is liberating and what is liberating is impermanence. But impermanence seems like such a dead kind of mean, insensitive thing to talk about. We even thought Joseph sounded insensitive. We were like, shouldn't we say something about compassion? And he said, yes, you can talk about compassion, but you got to get some impermanence in there, some liberation in there. (laughs) This is my liberation talk. (laughs) So Thaddeus created the thing that Joseph tried to help me see I could not see it until I watched Thaddeus go through what he went through. And I realized that there is a liberative aspect to being free of the body, that there is a way that as long as everything's working in tandem, it's great. But when things begin to work out of sync, it gets very, very difficult. And that is sort of where dukkha comes from. And we can begin to kind of see it. The sort of last thing that I want to kind of point to that Thaddeus helped me see, not only the gift of impermanence, because as soon as I found out he had died, I was so relieved that he was not stuck in this body that was deteriorating and decaying and was not comfortable anymore. And I did have a sense that he himself was fine. I didn't have a sense that he somehow was no longer uh, present because the body was gone. The other thing that he kind of taught me was the way in which he understood. So, so when, when Thaddeus got diagnosed and the pandemic happened, all of my retreats got canceled and I started teaching retreats at home and we lived in this studio. And so he was always there, him and his daughter. 
uh, he would be gone sometimes, but by and large, him and his daughter were, uh, you know, he lived there with me. He just lived in a separate little section. But I would teach all these retreats and knowing that he was going through the chemo and all of the different health things and the health challenges that you go through and losing his hair and all of that. And there came a point when he, uh, he never actually told me he thought of himself as a Buddhist, never. Um, even, even if I tried to mention meditation or Dhamma, he would be like, yeah, I don't want to hear that. So when he, I don't know, I guess he was about a year into it. So it was like November, November, 2021, we we're going to have a big Thanksgiving day event with the family. And he was supposed to, um, uh, we were going to all get together. And so he came to me and said, I think we should tell people that uh, two years was what they thought was the longest it was going to be. So we're going to be coming to the end, he said. So we should tell people, prepare them. Because, you know, most people can't do suffering like we Buddhists do. This I said, we Buddhists? <laughs> oh, we're Buddhists now. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you on that. He said, it's, he said that there's a, there's a relationship with suffering that's almost poetic, is what he said. It's poetic, this relationship with suffering. It's not like fighting or grumbling or complaining. It's poetic. Isn't that beautiful? I can believe him. We do have a poetic way of talking about suffering and being with suffering. And there's something about being able, being willing to see the beauty in suffering, to see the, the uplift in it. You know, to see the freedom that comes in it, to see all of that, there is this capacity that as practitioners, we only can do that because we talk about suffering together. That's the only reason why we can do that. Because it's not like we can suffer on our own. It's because that we get together and we talk about suffering, that we help each other see the beauty and the poeticness of it. And him talking to me, it's like we don't, we, we, we are able to be with it. So this, this idea of talking about, of, of recognizing Thaddeus's death, it goes way beyond just, um, did his uh did Thaddeus's body die? It goes way beyond that. It goes to the very heart of what I think the Buddha was trying to point to, and he was trying to help us see that it's not personal. Everyone is going to go through this at some point. It is a little scary and intimidating. The idea that we're all going to die, but that if we are willing 
to talk about death and talk about the difficulties we have in life with each other as Sangha, then we can begin to see it's not personal. So it may be, it, it might be impermanence of it is difficult to bear. And there's a lot of dukkha that comes with it, but it's not personal. And in that understanding is what is liberative about this process. So I could have kept, I could have kept all of this for myself. I could have just thought all these things that Thaddeus shared with me and kind of kept it to myself. But there's something inherently beautiful about being able to come here because you, because many of you know my stories of Thaddeus. And so there's something inherently beautiful about knowing it this way and um, having a sense about who he was and uh, how he lived and having this understanding that it's not just chopped off. It's actually this, uh, this fluidity that happens. Um, and even though he died the day before Easter, I bet you could kind of feel like he's in the room. You know, there's a sense of like, oh yeah, there's Thaddeus here. And that, that it doesn't, that there's something that makes Thaddeus Thaddeus that's not tied to whether or not his body's here. And for those of us that are older, because when you're younger, you don't ever, you don't think you're going to die anyway. You think you, you're you going to figure it all out. We're going to have it all figured out. Well, we don't die <laughs> by the time I get older. I'm not even going to get older. I remember before the pandemic, I was still dyeing my hair because the idea that I would have gray hair is unacceptable. And it took the pandemic to be like, whatever, I'm just going to stop and just let it be gray and have to accept that I'm getting older. So it's not this, uh, it's not that easy to accept this. But in the, um, for those of us that are older, we need to not only just deal with our fears around death, but we need to have experiences and connect with realities that help us see that we are more than just our bodies because the body begins to break down and it's not the body that we once had when we were younger. And we really need to believe that we are more than these bodies and we are, but we can only see that if we are willing to, talk about, connect with the truth that these bodies decay, die, and the realness of who we are, the non-self of it, meaning this part of me is not who I am. I'm something much bigger and broader than that. I'm my understanding, I'm my intentions, and my wisdom and my kindness, and this is more of who I am. This is what you'll remember about me, not what so much what I look like, but more about how it felt when I was in your presence. And that's what you think about Thaddeus. 
is how it feels to know him more so than, you know, what he looked like. Because what he looked like when he died is certainly not the Thaddeus I knew. So um, I think I'll leave you with one little story about him. A little bit of more of Thaddeus' great wisdom. (laughs) I'm so happy this happened. So some of you know, Thaddeus and I used to fight. I mean, bitterly fight because I wanted him to go to college. And I wanted him to go to college, find some kind of career and make something of himself because I was not going to pay for everything he did his whole life, which is what I ended up doing with fingerprinting. But that's a whole other story. So I would fight with him and fight with him about going to college. And he, you know, his brother went to college and I'm like, look at your brother. He went to college. Look how good he's doing. And Thaddeus was like, I'm not that kind of person. I don't want to go to college. And I, I, you know, all he wanted to do was wash dishes uh, as a job and play music because he was a jazz pianist. That's all he wanted to do. Just play music, play music, play music. And I'm like, that is, that music is not going to pay the bills. You got to get a job job. You got to go to college. If you would go to college, why don't you get a degree in music? Why don't you get a degree in this? I just gave him all kinds of things. Didn't want to go. And then about four years ago, Thaddeus came to me and he said, look, okay, mama, do you remember that kid? You know that kid where, do you remember that picture of me when I had the blue shirt on? And I said, yes, that's my baby. Of course I remember that. You were so cute. You were so, he was like, in, I don't know, first grade. He was so cute, sweet looking. I'm like, of course I remember that. He goes, I am not that kid. I'm like, what do you mean you're not that kid? Of course you're that kid. He goes, no. That's your image of me, but that is not me. So now I can go to college to make you happy. Or you can let me not go to college. And I promise you, I'll be happy. I'll make myself happy. Which one, which one you want me to do? And I'm like, well, surely we can have some kind of compromise. <laughs> He's like, no, there's no compromise. I will go to college if it'll make you happy. And you can stop this arguing or you can let it go and let me be happy on my own. I swear to God, years into this cancer, I am so glad that I told him he didn't have to go to college. You don't have to go. You can do whatever you want to do. It's fine. I'll support you. As long as you can make yourself happy, I'll support you. And then a year later, is when we found out that he had the cancer. Now, just those of you that are parents, you know how we are. We can pretty much make our kids do what we wanted to do. And there was a part of me that really wanted to make that. I could, I would have guilted him. I wouldn't have cared. I would have did whatever it took to get him in college. I don't know why to this day, why I let go of it, why in that moment I chose to let him be however he wanted to be. But 
it was maybe two years before he got diagnosed. But I have, during his uh, early days of the cancer, we have laughed about how he would have been miserable. He would have been miserable for two years and then found out he was going to die. That would have been too much. But instead, because I was willing to let go of my need for him to be what I wanted him to be, he was free to enjoy himself. And he did some great things with music and his cousin, and he had a lot of fun. And I paid all the bills, but (laughs) (laughs) he, it was worth it. Because when I look back on it, I didn't know what was going to come two years later and or a year. I think it was about two years. I didn't know the news that we were going to get later. So there, there is something to this letting go of our rigid, our, our rigidly holding on to things and, and keeping it the way we want it to be, this kind of noun way that we clunk through life instead of letting it be fluid and impermanent and rise and fall and come and go and loosening up some of the need to control everything. That, that lesson that he has taught me, not because I knew what I was doing. I'm actually grateful (laughs) that I let go. I could have easily been, no, you got to go to college. I would have said, I think you should go to college and make me happy. And then in the long run, you'll be happy. That sounds more like the way I would have thought about it. But it wasn't like that. And somehow I let go of him. And in letting go and letting him be however he wanted to be, I really do not have a lot of remorse and um, regret that I forced him to be some way that he didn't want to be. I actually feel uh, the the bliss, what Buddha would call the bliss of blamelessness, because I did not force him. So that's, I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, we'll take a moment and be quiet. And then I'll see if you guys have any comments or questions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thaddeus, giving me something to talk about. <laughs> so I'll see if you have any comments or questions or anything. Really, it's pretty open. Yeah, come on up here, Beth. So I, um, I think that. Um, Thaddeus was my teacher tonight. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking about Thaddeus and I felt his presence, it reminded me of what you said at the beginning of the meditation when you spoke with the Buddha as present. Mm-hmm. You said the Buddha sitting next to you. And the Buddha, if you have a backache, the Buddha may have a backache too. 
So I thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. A lot of people don't know that the Buddha had uh, back problems, but he did. Uh, he, you know, probably all those years of sleeping on uh, roots and ground and stuff, you know, he was ascetic. And so he had problems with his back and sometimes he couldn't even teach because it was so painful. Come on, good. Thank you. Look at that. I don't want you to be afraid to speak and say something. It's really not the, it's, it's, it's really a special time that we can connect with each other like this. <laughs> um, hello. Hi. Um, I went to a, a death retreat this past year. Ah. And it has really brought like the nature of impermanence into my more of my forefront. Yeah. And I'm not enlightened. <laughs> um, I don't always feel the liberation of that or the easiness um, or the delighting in it while it's here. Um, a lot of times I've been experiencing like, an awareness that it's fleeting and that stirs up a lot of panic or fear that I'm going to lose like the good qualities that are here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I try to be with that anxiety or be with that fear. And it's like, yeah, like, that might be, po- it's a possibility that it will get worse. And it's possible that it will get better. Mm-hmm. I just know it'll be, it will be different. Um, but I haven't figured out how to be at peace with that. And it's also bringing me out of being present. Um, so I wanted to ask you for your advice. Yeah. I, first of all, it's great wisdom. What you're saying has a lot of wisdom in it. That is the truth of the whole thing. So it's not that you have to be happy with it. You just have to notice when you're scared of it, when you're easy with it, when it seems like, oh, I can do this, I can understand this, and when you don't understand this. And just notice, instead of noticing this depth, because that's kind of a hard thing to do for a lay practitioner who's as young as you are, right? At least the way you look. The that death kind of deep death contemplation uh, is something that monastics do regularly. But another way to think about it is think of endings and beginning to notice that there are endings and there are beginnings, endings and beginnings, and there are durations, endings, beginnings, durations. And you can begin to notice that you don't have a lot of control over all of it. Some things you do have control over. So you can set an intention, let's say, to have a certain career, and you can set an intention to get the proper training, to look for a job there and to do it, but you don't have control over whether you get the job. You don't have control over whether this all works out exactly the way you want it to work out. But there's nothing wrong with the setting of intentions towards something. And I think sometimes 
it's it's like uh, over the course of Thaddeus's uh, illness, there were times when I was very sad and times when I was very angry and I didn't like it and scared to death and not sure. And I feel more released now. I would say relieved now, mostly because it feels like oh, a huge weight has been lifted off of my shoulders. So some of what you can feel into the relief of the impermanence is the idea that you don't have to control everything. So some things in your life, you're right, are going to go good. And some things are not. And so we have to learn to live with the ebb and flow of that. And that's what it sounds like to me you're actually doing. It does not mean that you're going to be easy with the bad times. It means you're going to accept that I'm not going to be so easy when there's bad times. But you accept that that all is part of this inevitable flow that kind of goes through life. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. um, Even like when things are good or I'm choosing to leave a good situation for another situation, Mm -hmm. how do you uh, like enjoy it while it's here? Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah. I think what you are learning is not so much that you have to enjoy everything, Mm -hmm. but that you are accepting that you won't enjoy everything. So if you're leaving a good situation, there may be some joy about where you're going, looking forward to that, but it will not replace the sadness of letting go of something you really don't want to go. I don't want to let this go. So there's going to be some sadness there, but I really want to go over here. So there's going to be some excitement about that. The fact that we have to hold both that sadness and that excitement is not, does not mean something's wrong. It just means it is the truth of impermanence. There is a letting go and a, and a, and a moving towards the arising of something else. The acceptance of that. So some days you're going to feel great because you're thinking about where you're going. And some days it's going to be a bummer because you're thinking about what you're leaving. That acceptance of both of those is what you're trying to hold. Not I should be okay either way because you're not going to be okay either way. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, I see Jean's hand up. Hey, Jean. Um, I just wanted to thank you for this um, talk tonight. Uh, It felt really special, and I felt uh, included in the wisdom and beauty of the relationship that you had. Um, It was special and is special, so thank you. And I really connected with... um, a statement you made early in the talk about the sense of connectedness that comes when you think about and talk about impermanence. 
And I just uh, wanted to share that um, during 2021, uh, I spent the whole year in uh, in the throes of dealing with cancer. Uh, I was sort of declared free for like eight months and it showed back up again. And now I'm in the midst of it again, another cycle. And so the value that I found in the Sangha in sharing that illness and the connectedness is uh, beyond belief. I, I do hold up a silly little handmade sign saying, love you, Sangha. Uh, it was true before the cancer ever came along. But during that year, it just uh, solidified uh, in ways that I could not even imagine and uh, continues to this day as I deal with this newest round of um, medical challenge. Uh, and I really want the Sangha to know uh, that... Um, the value of your shared thoughts and responses is incalculable. It's, um, cannot be put a price on that. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So, uh, believe in it. It can happen for you too. And it has happened for me and I thank you for it. So that's all I wanted to just share. Thank you, Jean. Yes, there is something quite uh, gifting of being able to share our difficulties. It's great when we share mudita and we share the mudita is the Pali word for joys. So it's great when we share when things are going good and we're all happy and everything is great and that's good. But there is something uniquely um, freeing and, and supportive, almost like a net that we rest in, like a hammock when, um, we can share our difficulties and feel supported in that because it is the nature of this practice to acknowledge suffering and be with suffering. And in that, that's what we're really connected. That's where we're really connected, intertwined. And so. Yes, I appreciate you sharing that. I wanted to say just one more short thing um, that I used to think uh, the gold standard was my family. Now, please don't, if you know any of my family, don't tell them that they've been replaced by the Sangha, but it's true. The beauty and the uh, Understanding and acceptance and compassion that came from the song is like unmatched by anyone in my family. So, um, I'm great. Yeah, me too. That's the way I feel about it too. Hey, Lauren. 
Yeah, I, I just, first of all, just want to really thank you, Tweri, for coming tonight and for sharing with us because it really is, um, it really is important to share. And it's such an offering. And um, I just have kind of um, just let certain things soak in, like, um, well, it it just makes me um, admire human being, the, what human beings are capable of, and the courage. And you know, when you said that um, Thaddeus was angry at first, or was you know reacting like we all do when we are faced with something that isn't what we wanted. But that then he had turned towards something bigger. Um, and had that idea perspective, you know, and it it's uh, um, it's just something I'll remember. I mean, that that's something that he... Um, has given me, and the other one was where <laughs> he said, "We Buddhists." I know what was exactly he said. I love the way you said it. The we Buddhists, you know, um, not everybody can be like we Buddhists with suffering, and that meant so much to me too. Um, so those two things are something that. Um, Anyway, it's been a gift, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to Thaddeus, and I I didn't know him, but I certainly know what you mean by the presence is still there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what he said, that they don't know suffering like we Buddhists. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, Deb, you want to come up? Yeah, it's very special, Lauren, what you're saying. I um, I do appreciate what he offered us. Um, I appreciate that. I just, uh, you know, you don't uh, you don't always know that somebody is gonna have that kind of impact in your life. And certainly for me, as messed up as I was as a parent, I was very fortunate to have Thaddeus and Raymond come along and help me out of myself. So, (laughs) great. Go ahead, Deb. Well, I I also would like to thank you for this um, time with you tonight, Tori. And it reminds me of one of the big reasons why I practice is so that uh, when my death comes, I hope that I can be awake for it because I'm really curious what happens. So I practice so that I can meet my death with um, some equanimity and above all, I hope a sense of humor because, you know, uh, there's a lot of ways that you can find humor in what's going on and it's an important defense mechanism and I certainly rely on it quite a bit and I'm not the only one Mm -hmm. 
uh, my late brother-in-law, some years ago, he died as a young man with a very dire prognosis of one of these glioblastomas, one of these tumors like Ted Kennedy had or like John McCain had. It's like when you get that diagnosis, you know, you can cash in the life insurance because you are not, they're going to pay you out. They're not going to question. So he was at a gathering of friends and he made some sort of comment about, you know, what they say, starve a cold, feed a tumor. (laughs) And I think people's jaws just dropped open. (laughs) But that's the kind of guy he was. (laughs) And it just kind of shakes you kind of aside. I mean, I remember too, my father died a number of years ago and I came, this was on the East Coast and I came back here to Seattle and, you know, just these funny spaces open up. So I wasn't even really thinking about dad's death, but I was on a bus coming through the U district and it was sort of afternoon time and a lot of students, you know, young students, undergraduates piling onto the bus And I remember sitting there looking out the window and all of a sudden this thought came in my head. All of you people are going to (laughs) die. You're all going to die. As if everybody was going to be in a big accident on this bus. It was imminent, you know, their death. You're all going to die. I said, what a weird thing to think. And it was kind of funny. But it's also the truth. That's right. So it just puts us into these strange spaces. You know, when we think about our own mortality, our own impermanence, someone said to me once, you know, cemeteries are filled with people who were irreplaceable. Yep. That's it. Yeah. You know, Thaddeus called that perspective. That's what he says. Your Mm -hmm. dad's death gave you perspective. So even though it might seem a little morbid, seeing the bus and realizing that as young as we are, we're all going to die. There is no process by which we're going to avoid that. It's not to have this sense of uh, Buddha was not this kind of uh, in that, I can't remember what it's called, but this futility in the way that we're thinking. Nihilism, that's what it is. It wasn't like that. It was like, enjoy yourself here because you are, that there is an inevitable end in the beginning of whatever it is. So do what you can to uh, practice in the Dhamma, to, to be as kind as you can, do the least amount of harm. And enjoy the life that you have been given because along with this idea that you are going to die comes the teaching that this human birth is a rare opportunity. So it's not, it's, it's called the precious human birth that not, um, depending on your thoughts on whether or not you get rebirth or not, being born into the world as in human form or being born itself is a rare thing. And given that it's so rare, if you recognize that you're born and you're here, then your responsibility is to enjoy it, to appreciate it, respect it, and do what you can to not just waste it away. And that 
that sense of we're all going to die is for the uplift of that understanding and not for the nihilism of it doesn't really matter because we're all going to die. Do you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some kind of uh, freedom that starts happening when mm-hmm. you can see that. Well, how are we feeling? Anybody else have anything to say? I see a hand. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I see you. Thank you so much for sharing your story tonight. Um, I have a question about the sort of fear of death. A couple of years ago, I um, became very aware that I was going to die and Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately has not stopped me from being petty or um, I think actually, I think actually what happened is I, it um, ignited a big anxiety and um, I have trouble like not clinging to things because Mm -hmm. of that fear. Um, And it's hard. I'm struggling, I guess, with this knowledge that feels um, like a big death is coming and also sort of dealing with my own behavior and emotions that um, feel like I'm grasping and acting in that way. So I think what you're pointing to, there is a, it, there is an actual body of practice called some Vega is what it's called some, in some respects. There's a kind of uh, a, a, an awareness that we're going to die, an urgency that comes into it. I think that's what you were pointing to too. There's this realization that comes. And some Vega in and of itself it's very troubling. It's very difficult because it is the futility of why do all of this? But tied to some vega is another term, polyturn, called posada. And posada is this recognition of seeing a path and walking on the path. So if this world is futile, then let me find a path and walk on that path and stay with that path and not try to keep the futility of what I've seen from happening. If you keep, if you stay over here in some Vega in the futility of I'm going to die. So what's the point? And you start grasping a hold of everything. It will be painful because some Vega in and of itself is painful. You can't kind of take away the pain that comes with this some vega realization. We all, many of us, I should say, have that some vega kind of understanding where you just, it, it was sort of what Deb was pointing to on the bus. It's like you're sitting there and then all of a sudden it's like, you're all going to die. It's just over. That's it. Because you realize this is the truth of it. Right. So there is that aspect of practice that comes to the realization of the truth of impermanence. If you stay in that realization only, then you struggle against it and can do a lot of grasping. But what your the, the, the liberative quality of this is 
that if it's true that we're all going to die and everything we love, we're going to lose, then find a practice and stay with that practice and just walk on that practice path because there's no point in anything other than that. And so the Posada is the uh, liberative quality of that. The best way I could point to what I mean is like um, if somebody were using drugs and they can't, they just can't seem to get away from it. And they come to this place that says, this addiction is bigger than me. I cannot free myself from it. It's at that moment when they've given up the futility of this drug or alcohol or this addiction of whatever sort solving their problem. And instead, they leave it and go a different direction. That's what that experience of Posada, I mean, of some Vega is really the, the, it's, it's supposed to be the energetic motivation that motivates you to find the path because it's what happened to the Buddha. He had a realization that this was all futile and he needed to leave and go find a way uh, out of suffering. And so that's what you're wanting to look for. So the, the truth is, though, that once the person who's an addict comes to a realization that this is futile, from that moment until you're steady and strong on your path to sobriety, that's a very wonky time, wobbly, and sometimes you're good with it and sometimes you're not. It's that kind of wobbliness that kind of begins to happen. But you want to just know that you're on a path and you stick with the path with whatever life brings you. Do you see? So you're in, you've had the Samvega. I'll call it the Samvega. You had that. And there is a path. But it's going to be a little bit of a back and forth until you get your sea leg, so to speak, on the path. And you feel like, okay, confidently walking on the path with whatever. All right. Welcome. Did Deborah leave? There you go. No, I just go ahead, to say thank you. Thank you for sharing your experience during this whole time. Thank you. You're welcome. No problem at all. And then Emory, let's have you be the last one. Thank you so much um i've loved i've loved this evening and and loved your talk um and you know it's it's made me think a lot about parenting um as it was a it was about so many things um death and letting go and and life and living but also about parenting and i i don't know if i'm alone in finding that um, as a parent, I feel like I have suffered a lot. Like it feels like parenting <laughs> involves a lot of suffering. Yeah. So I just, um, I just wonder if you could comment on that a little. I mean, my kids are, um, I have three teenage boys. So that's part of why I suffer. Um, 
And uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that's the reason I got on the path as I wanted to be a better parent. I think it has made me a better parent. Um, but it's, I don't know, it, it's almost in a painful way because I have learned to let go more and more um, and just be open to the suffering that they go through and that I go through. It doesn't make it, it, it makes it more beautiful, but it doesn't I think I'm kind of losing you, but I think I got what you were saying. It doesn't make it, uh, it's just difficult, right? It is difficult. This is what the Buddha was pointing to. I'm going to mute you so that there's no feedback there. Uh, I tried to, but it didn't work. Okay, you do it. So um, what we are trying to do in this practice is not not suffer. I think the first noble truth, the first ennobling truth of this practice, the first thing that you learn to be able to awaken when you first say, okay, what is it if I'm going to awaken? The first ennobling thing you have to come to a realization is that suffering is the nature of human existence. It is the nature of it, primarily because everything is impermanent. So even I have two teenage boys and yes, when they were little, they loved mama. It was great. And then when they became teenagers, oh my God, I remember fighting with them in these stupid, bitter fights. And one day I woke up and I'm getting ready to go to work and I'm dragging and I can barely make it. I'm just so beat down. And my oldest boy is whistling through the house, feeling great, happy as can be, because basically he was energized by that fight and I was getting worn out by it. <laughs> it, it, is, it is the nature of parents to suffer with the choices our children make we do the best we can to help them know uh to make wiser you know skillful choices but to be honest I did not always make skillful choices when I was growing up and I've had to live with the consequences of some of the choices I made now, gratefully, my parents were so mean, I didn't tell them. I kept them on the down low about everything because it would have been way too difficult. But I didn't want the boys to grow up in this kind of keeping everything from me. I wanted them to help me. I wanted them to tell me what was going on. So in truth, the minute I did that, which I didn't understand when they were three, and they were just telling me that they stole a cookie. I, I didn't get what that was going to mean. 
when they were 16 and 17. That's a whole different level of truthfulness that I could have done without. So it's part of of why we fought so much is because they would tell me things and then I would get mad at them and they would say, why are you mad? I'm telling you what I'm doing, you know? So there's a way in which it is inherent that raising children is difficult. If you allow it to be the truth of what it is, which is it will be difficult, and you put your trust in uh, the, the, you do the best that you can as a parent. And it's almost like the only other thing you have to do is what Thaddeus said. You have to let them make their own choices for themselves. You have to give them permission, depending on how old they are, to make their own choices. and. It's a scary venture, the idea that we let our kids make their own choices. But you do take the risk of insisting that it's your way and it isn't always the best way for them. But it's something that you have to kind of decide for yourself in a given moment, what's the best way to be. And if you're choosing, like I could have easily told Thaddeus, no, you need to Go to college because that's what I think is is good for me. I'll I'll take it on the chin. I know you'll be happy in the long run. I don't know why I didn't make that choice. And granted, it worked out well. But he could have ended up being, you know, like a a kid that was like 50 years old, still at home because he never went to college. He never got any skills. And he was just doing dishwashing. And he couldn't actually take care of his life. And. It could have ended up like that, too. It didn't have to end up the way it did. So we just make the choices we make in the moment, do the best we can, and and um, hope that our insincere parenting works out in a good favor for them. And that's probably the best you can do. And accept that inherent to parenting is dukkha. It's just part of it. There's no way to avoid it. You can't even avoid it when they get to be 40. You won't be avoiding it when they get older. There's no, this is what you need to know. There's no getting away from the dukkha of children. It's just inevitable. So that we have to come to terms with and let it be. So I'm going to end on this little poem here. Another little reflection from uh, uh, Ian. He says, the Dhamma is not a way out of our problems, but a way into them. In our problems, we realize the futility of thinking. In our problems, we experience the pain of the human condition. In our problems, we see the cause of our misery. And in our problems, we see that that cause, that we are that cause. The Dhamma takes us into this morass and through it. The Dhamma is more bridge than detour. So that is our ninth. That is our sharing. We want to thank Thaddeus for giving us something to talk about. <laughs> Big bodhisattva that he is. And um, I don't, is there an announcement? Beth, I'm sorry, you guys. I, I, I always end up.
Let's do it next week. Okay, good. You Perfect. Um, we can do it next week too, but it's, uh, it's, uh, he's, we're going to have the memorial for Thaddeus here. It'll be about an hour long. Uh, it'll be a combination of Christian and Buddhist practice since that's what he was. And, um, you're all welcome to come if you want to. It'll also be online. So you're always welcome to come online also. I'll just give you more information when we get it all. Hmm? Oh, Saturday, May, uh, May 6th. Yeah. It'll be at 10 o'clock. So you'll get more information if you really want to come and say goodbye. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really am glad I was here tonight. Thank you for being here. It was very special. I'm glad to share this with you.